Hello, and welcome to Alexander Disease Research Update, episode number five, recorded on December 3rd, 2021. I'm Albie Messing from the Waisman Center at the University of Wisconsin. And with me today are Amy Waldman and Nina Thomas, both from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Amy is well known to all of you, but Nina, since this is your first time on the podcast, can you say a bit about your background and current position? Sure, and thanks for having me. Um, my name is Nina Hatungari Thomas, and I'm a pediatric neuropsychologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and an associate professor of clinical psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania. So I spend most of my time doing clinical evaluations of patients, but I'm also the director of the Behavioral Neuroscience Corps of the Center for Human Phenomic Science at CHOP, which is a mouthful, but it's basically a research core that provides cognitive testing for lots of different studies across CHOP and Penn, including Dr. Waldman's studies of Alexander disease. Again, thank you both for being here. So today our topics will be three recently published papers. The first I'll just briefly mention, uh, it's a review by Sri Vastava and colleagues that was actually published in 2020, but I missed it. So I'm making up for lost ground here. It's a review titled Alexander disease. It's in an online forum hosted by the National Library of Medicine and the NIH called Gene Reviews uh, and Unlike most other reviews, this one focuses on clinical aspects of Alexander disease, that is diagnosis and management. It gets updated periodically, and that's why I didn't realize that it had been updated since the last time. Uh, it's free to anyone who can access the internet. Uh, and Amy Waldman is a newly added co-author for the 2020 version. So feel free to take a look at that one. The second paper is a short case report by Rinaldo and colleagues titled Area Postrema Syndrome as the Initial Presentation of Alexander Disease Published in Neurology. Amy? Thanks, Albie. Yes, so first I wanna mention this paper um, is in a section of the Neurology Journal that is meant for residents and fellows. And it is a very brief report that is intended for interesting MRI scans as demonstrated here. So it's a very specific purpose to try to help others um, make some associations when they see a very distinct MRI. And in this case, we have a 16 year old boy with six years of anorexia, failure to thrive, which means difficulty gaining weight, vomiting and swallowing difficulties. And the very distinct MRI shows a mass-like lesion in the dorsal medulla, which is a portion of the brainstem. But let me add that he was then diagnosed with the area postrema syndrome and GFAP sequencing found a very unusual and interesting variant that we'll talk about at the end. So let me begin by asking Amy to explain, what is the area postrema? Yes, so this is a highly vascularized, so a lot of blood vessels area in the brainstem that plays a role in the autonomic nervous system, which is the brain's way of controlling, for example, the heart rate, the breathing rate, and also the stomach, such as digestion. So I often refer to the area postrema as the vomiting center in the brain. So when the st stomach is, for example, distended or overfull, or someone has ingested a toxin and the body is trying to get rid of it, 
the area postrema is activated in the brain and will make you throw up. And what is the area postrema syndrome? Yes. So the syndrome is, is the clinical triad or the clinical symptoms of nausea, vomiting, and maybe surprising to some hiccups. Now, we all get hiccups. So it's not just, you know, having hiccups that resolve within a few minutes or drinking water upside down or whatever trick you have. Um, but hiccups that usually last for hours or, or even longer um, are often common uh, and related to this syndrome. How often is this seen in Alexander disease? So this presentation is actually quite common in the later onset Alexander disease forms, such as the juvenile presentation or the type two presentation, or, or sometimes even the intermediate presentation of Alexander disease. So it's actually not that uncommon, but it's not always often recognized uh, because it doesn't have some of the other key features of Alexander disease. Would it be called area postrema syndrome if it's seen in the context of all the other problems an Alexander disease patient might have? It still is appropriate to use that term because you're really talking about the clinical symptoms with the associated MRI findings. So it is um, most common that we see this area postrema syndrome in a juvenile patient who, who may or may not have other features of the disease. Some of them have no other clinical features of Alexander disease and may have just basal ganglia changes on the MRI or things that we pick up on the MRI, but not clinically. Um, and then there are some patients that do have this syndrome in the setting of the more typical features of Alexander disease, such as seizures or cognitive issues or developmental issues. Um, but as shown in this case, it can be an isolated symptom with an isolated MRI finding. And that's one of the reasons I think these authors highlighted this as a teaching neuroimage to raise awareness that this particular uh, phenotype can be present in Alexander disease. You know, I forgot about the hiccups, but there have been Alexander disease patients who are presented with hiccups as their major problem. So is it also seen in any other disorders? Yes, actually it is most commonly recognized as a uh, symptom in neuromyelitis optica or NMO. This is a neuroinflammatory disorder of astrocytes. So an, an inflammatory disorder as opposed to a genetic one. So it's an acquired condition. It's distinct from multiple sclerosis, but it's in that family of neuroinflammatory diseases like MS. Um, and it is of course treated very differently from Alexander disease. All right, uh, I wanted to add one comment about the mutation because the variant that was identified in this patient is, is really unusual in that it's uh, not, it, it does not result in a change in amino acid. It's what's called a silent mutation. So there's a change at the DNA level and then the corresponding RNA, but it's, it does not change the, the amino acid that's encoded at that position. In addition, it's in a, a minor isoform of GFAP uh, called GFAP delta, uh, or sometimes people will call the same thing epsilon. And this accounts for only 5% or so, 5 to 10% of the GFAP that's present in the central nervous system. We don't really know what its functions are. And uh, we, re we recently reported only one other patient with this same mutation uh, in 2020. Uh, I thought it would be interesting to compare 
the presentation of that patient with this one. And that one was a girl. She also had disease onset at the age of 10 with headaches, uh, bulbar dysfunction. Amy, do you want to just quickly say what bulbar dysfunction might cover? Swallowing difficulties or some speech slurring, such as dysarthria, so weakness of the muscles around the mouth and the swallow. Mm -hmm. Failure to thrive, gastric, dysmotility, so some abnormalities of emptying the stomach, I guess, and seizures. Uh, and so, so it's, you know, especially for these rare variants, Alexander disease begins by being a rare disease, but even within Alexander disease, we've only heard of two patients of this. We really want to see how consistent the effects will be. I guess the other comment is uh, in Ronaldo's case, they didn't say anything about the parents, but it would be interesting to know whether either of the parents were affected in any way in the previous report from us in 2020, the, the, uh, one of the parents had very similar uh, problems and the same variant. Okay, Amy, so what's the key message here for patients and families? Yeah, I think the key message here for patients and families will be that vomiting is a neurologic symptom of Alexander disease. We often think of vomiting as being a stomach problem as opposed to a brain problem, but thinking of it as actually a brain problem, we have to use medications that work in the brain as these are often helpful to alleviate nausea, vomiting, and even hiccups um, if they are in fact present. And what do you think the key message should be for clinicians? Yeah, for clinicians, I think that it, it is really that patients with Alexander disease may not fulfill all the diagnostic MRI criteria, right? This particular patient had isolated brainstem findings, and there are a subset of patients that present with only lesions in this brainstem area, the area postrema, and so physicians must have a high index of suspicion when looking for Alexander disease. The third study we're going to talk about is by Kirsch and colleagues, entitled Neuropsychological Functioning in Alexander Disease, a Case Series, published in Child Neurology Open. In this report, the authors describe the results from detailed neuropsych testing conducted multiple times over a period of years in two patients, both of whom had common variants in GFAP. Case one is a boy with the R79C variant who had onset of symptoms in early infancy, described as reflux and choking on food. He then experienced delayed development in speech and motor functions. For example, at 20 months, he was only using three words and not walking. MRIs were done at the age of two, which led to genetic testing and the diagnosis of Alexander disease. He was given neuropsych testing at the ages of six, seven, nine, and 12 years. Case two is a girl with the R416W variant who had onset of symptoms around the age of 10, described as a decline in handwriting ability or fine motor skills, followed by fatigue and problems with shaking of her legs, balance, breathing, and swallowing. MRIs were done at the age of 12, which led to the diagnosis of Alexander disease. So Nina, can you translate the findings from what seemed to be a fairly large number of tests, not all the same for both cases, into a coherent story for us about cognitive changes in Alexander disease? Right. 
I think the advantage of these two cases that not only did they do a wide variety of tests, so they looked at multiple cognitive domains, including verbal and visual reasoning, academics, some memory, some language, some visual motor skills, but also, of course, like the serial assessments and the fact that they managed to use the exact same measures across time um, to track within an individual what their story was. Um, that said, I think it is hard to, to translate this into a coherent story for each type of Alexander disease, because obviously the cases are not just different between the two cases, but also over time and their pattern of strengths and weaknesses and how they progress across the time that they're being followed. I think some things are, are very common across the two cases, especially the impairment in fine motor skills. And that's also something that like, is particularly for case one with the, the frontal um, lobe involvement you would expect to see occurring. Um, but also they're a little bit surprising in what isn't occurring. So for example, you know, I think case one showed continued um, expressive vocabulary strengths, um, which would be of the language skills a little bit more frontal and maybe you would expect to be more impacted. And then case two showing, you know, good reading and spelling acquisition, even, you know, up to the, the last time point at which she was followed. Um, indicates good new learning in a way that looking at the verbal memory you might not expect. So there are definitely patterns that exist, but I wouldn't try to, to form a narrative based on these two cases um, outside of what they mean for these particular individuals. Well, anytime you're comparing individuals and uh, you're also doing longitudinal assessments over time in a single person, the important question, question comes up is how accurate are these tests and how stable they would be over time. So let's say in a typically developing individual tested multiple times um, or even by different people, you know, it's not mm -hmm. obvious from the report that the same tester did the test. How do you assess reliability of the tests themselves? I mean, the good thing is that these are widely used measures. So they are very professionally developed tests and they put lots of money into collecting, you know, nationwide stratified norms. They would collect data on validity, congruent and convergent validity and reliability from time to time. Um, and they publish all that information. So like if you wanted to look at the particular reliability test retest across six months for the score from the WISC, you could find that information in the test manual. Um, for the most part, these tests are very reliable. They wouldn't make the final cut for inclusion in the measure if they weren't reliable. For some tasks, you do worry about practice effects because for some tasks, especially problem solving tasks, they kind of rely on you not having seen the task before, you're having to figure it out as you go. So I, I can recognize that some tasks that I might give in a clinical evaluation weren't included here because they wouldn't be um, particularly appropriate for serial assessment. But overall, I think, you know, you would expect generally consistent performance with the caveat that People are more vulnerable when they have physical symptoms, you know, when they are easily fatigued, when they get headaches, when they have visual or motor or speech problems. And so we know that's a challenge for our patients and we wanna capture them at, you know, maybe not their optimal functioning, but their typical functioning at least. Would you say that any of these test results are unique to Alexander disease or the leukodystrophies? 
No, these are pretty widely used tests. So I would use the same measures if I was doing an assessment of a kid looking at late effects of chemotherapy for leukemia or effects of a neural tube defect like spina bifida or, you know, an epilepsy um, new onset. But, but what about the results? I mean, do you see a particular pattern of abnormalities? Well, certainly, you know, when you're looking at Alexander disease, you're look you have the potential for skills plateauing or maybe even declining, which is not the case in, you know, the vast majority of, of acquired neurological deficits that we would see. Um, so you do have to have an extra level of attention to that where you might not for other um, symptoms, unless, you know, some kids with very chronic seizure disorders might, or metabolic disease might have that concern. But for most kids, their developmental trajectory might be a little bit, you know, off the typical path, but they're still, you don't have concern that they're going to have a, a plateau or decline in skills. So is the conclusion that everything has to be individualized for each patient, that you take the results from this kind of neuropsych battery and use that information to tailor a treatment or management program for an individual patient? Is that the value of it or does it contribute at all to classification or research? I think it really depends on the purpose of the evaluation. And, and that's why we try to be very forthright with families, you know, if something is a clinical evaluation or if something is a research evaluation. Because for research, your priority is to compare across subjects for most um, research designs. And then maybe for like the natural history study across for one individual across time points. But you're choosing measures based on the ones you can most directly compare across a, a variety of um, patients and a variety of skill levels, especially for a disease like Alexander disease, which can have very different outcomes. And then also, you know, to encompass as much of the time span as possible. So a lot of tests are only, you know, they switch over at age seven or age 12 or age 18. And um, that makes it hard to compare even within an individual across time, test versions change. So the WISC-3 becomes the WISC-4 and then the WISC-5. So I think, you know, when you're prioritizing for research, you focus on those types of things that allow you to advance the science and compare across individuals, compare to MRIs and phenotypes and contribute to the classification. When you're doing a purely clinical battery, you might give some of the main measures that you would give for a research battery, but you're focusing on what works for this individual. So if I need to give someone who's high school age, a, you know, a task with the task demands of a preschool age task, then I'll do that because that gives us useful information instead of just saying that they're not where they should be for their age, which they already, you know, the family already knows that coming into the evaluation. So what would you say the key message from this paper should be for patients and families? So I think it shows that there's definitely a lot we don't know about this disease. Um, and I think sometimes we recognize neuropsychological evaluation, it's a, it's a big commitment of time and effort compared to other medical tests or procedures. Um, if we do a clinical evaluation, it's often scheduled for a full day and research evaluations can be you know, a few hours at least. 
And we recognize that's a lot to ask from families that are already overwhelmed with other doctor's appointments. Uh, but I do hope that these cases and just this conversation in general can help families feel not discouraged by the prospect of spending a whole day doing this, but um, can see how the information we produce might be a little bit different from the information that other specialists give them and hopefully can inform a child's care and advance the science. And what do you think the key message should be for clinicians? I think for people seeing children clinically, like for a clinical neuropsychological evaluation, it's pretty clear that you can't go into the evaluation with expectations about what you're gonna see because even within types of Alexander disease, the outcomes are so variable. And you know, often what you would expect based on the neuroimaging is not what you expect, what you actually find when you're working with the child. And then for researchers, I would love to see more acknowledgement of the issues um, that come along with standard scores. And when the same measures are given over time, like in these two cases, I would love to see more presentation of raw scores or scores that are like age or grade equivalents, because that really tells you, is it the case that this child is progressing along their own trajectory. They're just not progressing at the same rate as same age peers. So their scores are drifting down or are they actually plateauing or declining in their own skills? Which is, I think, you know, a, a paramount question for the parents and families um, and the children themselves. Okay, now for some email. Um, remember you can send your questions to podcast at wasteman.wisc.edu, and we'll try our best to address them in a future podcast. Please send any feedback about these podcasts to the same email. Question one, Barb writes, can a person with Alexander disease donate blood or be an organ donor? Amy, do you want to handle this one? Sure. Um, yes, they can. So Alexander disease actually is, is mostly affecting the brain. There is some um, suspicion that there might be GFAP in the gut, which I can let Albie elaborate on a bit, but it does not affect your blood and you can certainly be an organ donor or if organ donation is not possible, even a donor to science in terms of um, the brain bank. Um, so all good questions. And yes, you can, you can participate in, in these things in many ways. Question two. Peter writes, my daughter has optic neuropathy. Is this a common symptom with Alexander disease and can it get better? At the moment, her sight is affected only on one side. Vision problems are actually complex and come from various areas of the visual system and the brain. Um, as for optic neuropathy, this actually implies involvement of the optic nerve or the optic chiasm. I have seen some infantile patients with involvement of these structures, but some of the other eye problems in Alexander disease could come from the white matter or the brain stem. But as for optic neuropathy, yes, it has occurred. In these podcasts, I'm not able to give direct medical advice, but I would uh, make sure that your daughter is seeing a neuro-ophthalmologist who is familiar with Alexander disease or with other optic neuropathies. And is it common for it to be only on one side or is it usually both sides? It actually depends on what structure is involved and whether it is symmetric or not symmetric. So the optic chiasm brings the optic nerves together. So if it's more on the right side of the chiasm or the left side, there may be a discrepancy in terms of the left versus right eye. 
again, uh, about the same, same patient. Her other symptom is vomiting. And this follows up on our, our first paper that we discussed today. She's been taking sodium valparate for six months, but it has not eradicated the vomiting completely. And she still has to rely on dexamethasone to stop it. My question is, does sodium valparate normally completely stop the vomiting? If yes, how long does it take? Do you adjust the dosing based on body weight? Yeah, great question. So again, I can't provide uh, direct medical advice for an individual patients. Um, I will say that yes, we do do uh, body weight dosing for sodium, sodium valproate. The responses vary. Um, and I would continue to work with your neurologist on the, the various strategies for the vomiting in the area of hostrema syndrome. Um, and I'm always happy to discuss such options with a neurologist or a pediatrician if they want to reach out to me, but I do hope she improves. Question four, am I retired? What's happened to the lab? I guess this one is for me. Technically, I retired from my faculty position and as director of the Wasteman Center in 2018, but I'm still active in research. I just have no other university responsibilities. The lab in Madison is increasingly run by Tracy Hagman, who has her own NIH grant on Alexander disease and who will continue to submit more. I help out where I can. We just had a terrific paper published last week uh, in Science Translational Medicine, and we'll cover that in next month's podcast. That's all for today's episode of Alexander Disease Research Update. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Amy and Nina for joining me today. Our theme song was written by Charlie Allenson, special technical assistance from my daughters Zoe and Rebecca, and from Clark Kellogg at the UW's Wasteman Center. And thanks to our donors for these podcasts, the Barrett Riddle family. I'm Albie Messing. See you next time.